From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Noise pollution can be a matter of life and death for wild animals. Think of a fox that's searching for a mouse under layers of snow. If the fox can no longer hear its mouse prey, that could mean the difference between getting a meal or not. We'll hear some novel ideas for reducing noise from cars and planes in national parks. Then, remembering the founder of the Denver Black Panthers in his own words. And later, Boulder author Rebecca Crane calls her latest young adult novel an ugly duckling story. And while it's about a teenager, Crane says the themes are universal. We all have moments of feeling like an outsider, wondering if the people that we've chosen to spend time with, to surround ourselves with, are really our people. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Trump administration is overhauling the Endangered Species Act, signed into law by Richard Nixon in 1973. The news has been met with fierce criticism from environmental groups. In Colorado, there are around 30 species of plants and animals listed as threatened or endangered, from a jumping mouse to the humpback chub. Well, today, we focus on a threat that isn't seen so much as heard. Let's imagine you're on a mountain hike as elk bugle in the background until... a vehicle passes by. The thing is, noise pollution does more than ruin an escape to the great outdoors. Research suggests if it goes unchecked, it can put wildlife at risk. Rachel Buxton is a conservation biologist who researched this with Colorado State University. And hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, we learned about a sound survey of open spaces in Colorado Springs. The Gazette reports that a team tied recorders to trees to capture sounds at different times of day. And it got us thinking about your research, which came out about two years ago now. I wonder what has happened in general with noise pollution since then. Noise pollution is something that continues to grow. The main sources are aircraft and vehicle traffic. And as you can imagine, those sources of noise pollution continue to grow. So there's more and more cars on the road every year and more and more flight traffic. But at the same time, our solutions to abating noise pollution also continue to grow. Okay, well, that's good news. Why don't we talk about that just uh, a bit later? Because I think it's important to understand what the effect of noise can be on wildlife. What have you found as specific impacts? The first is called masking, and that's where some sort of noise interferes with communication between different animals. It masks a bird's call or something. Absolutely. Yeah. So you can think classically of a bird singing in order to attract its mate and a car goes by or a plane passes over and simply covers up that song. And so its mate can no longer hear its song. And, And this might seem sort of trivial, but, you know, this can really mean the difference between life and death. Think of a, a fox that's searching for a mouse under layers of snow. If the fox can no longer hear its mouse prey, that could mean the difference between getting a meal or not. And for the mouse, if it can't hear the fox coming, that could mean the difference between becoming a meal or not. Mm. Another way is that it just distracts animals. 
This is something we've seen, for example, with prairie dogs in Colorado. So animals will spend more time looking out for predators, being vigilant instead of doing things like feeding. Oh, in other words, the unnatural sounds in the environment makes them hyper vigilant because they're thinking, I've got to be aware not only of that sound, but of what else is coming behind it. And that becomes all consuming. Absolutely. So um, a car may pass by and that sound might be perceived by an animal as an actual threat. And that can set off things like a fight or flight response. So the animal might simply flee the area or the animal might become very stressed out. And these are things that are happening out there right now. So Rachel Buxton, I am aware of how much effort communities are putting into light pollution. In fact, they're even being designated dark sky communities. Is there the equivalent for noise where, I don't know, particular cities or parks are trying to put a stake in the ground and say, quietly, uh, and say, (laughs) we are going to be a noise pollution free or minimal zone? You know, I'm not aware of the same sort of designation. However, there are increasing numbers of initiatives to decrease noise pollution now that we know what a huge and pervasive issue this really is. So just a really quick example, Muir Woods National Park, which is over in California, recently put up what's called quiet zone signs, just simply asking people to appreciate the natural park environment quietly. So no yelling, no running, you know, that sort of thing. And the results were really dramatic. So there were many, many decibel level reductions in sound levels from people. Is there any talk among, I don't know, you you mentioned airplanes and cars as a significant source of this. Is there any talk in those communities, either the manufacturers or the operators of, you know, of planes, airlines? Um, any, Any talk about that? Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of sort of cross collaboration between especially the National Park Service and the FAA to try and just be smart about how flights are planned, so flight routes specifically, a lot of flights end up going over wilderness areas. That's something we found in our research. And so if you can just be smart about where you route those flights instead of going over a nice pristine wilderness area, maybe that flight gets routed over one of the main roads in a national park. What else gives you hope in this arena? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So planning for shuttle systems. This is done in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Um, And not only does that decrease the amount of air pollution, it also decreases the amount of noise pollution because it just naturally decreases the amount of traffic. Are there ways in which we could design parks to make them quieter? And when when I say design parks, I guess I mean the portions of walkways that people are on or something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting new technologies coming out. Just to give you an example that's being trialed in national parks at the moment is something called quiet pavement technology. And this is where roads are repaved with a very porous type of pavement that actually absorbs the sound from your vehicle. 
any of us who've driven on a road where one side is under construction and the other one isn't knows the difference between how a road surface can affect even like the sound in in the cab of your car, for instance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing that some people might have actually seen during hikes or just sort of along the roadside actually are sound absorbing walls. So this is something that's often put around oil and gas drills and construction sites. And that's actually to absorb the noise that comes off of those projects. I suppose you have a whole question there about uh, wildlife migration and access and stuff. Yeah. You know, any talk about barriers gets very tricky. Absolutely. But, you know, around something like a, a drill or a rig system, you know, and that kind of technology becomes maybe a little bit more feasible. Well, thanks so much for this. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Rachel Buxton is a conservation biologist based at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. She worked with Colorado State to study the effects of noise pollution on wildlife. Buxton joined us via Skype. And thanks to CSU for the sound of that car drowning out the call of an elk. The founder of the Denver Black Panthers has died. Lauren Watson passed away last week at age 79. Watson helped start the Denver chapter in 1967 to fight racial discrimination and to protest the Vietnam War. He shared his philosophy of social action in this recording from 1969. It comes from the Colorado State University archives, their collection on student unrest. Anytime any small group of people, minority group of people, black, white, whatever, try to do something that is correct. Uh, it is always very simple to mobilize uh, two, ten, or a hundred times as many people uh, to suppress this group of people. Uh, this has been the history of the country. It's a uh, matter of fact, it's the history of the world. The people who have been trying to do uh, constructive action by any means necessary and to deal with a situation that needs change always find that the majority of the people are against that change. At the time, Watson was rallying behind students for a democratic society. They were protesting racism and a lack of diversity at CSU. He opined on the role of a university, that it's not just a place to study the past, but the present moment, and that it should take stock of its graduates. What we have to begin here at this university is an education that will speak and will tell the truth about the history of the country as it is today. Not what happened 10 years ago. We can say not what happened 20 years ago, but what is the country doing today and what are the people who graduated from this university last year doing today? What part of what military industrial machine are they a part of today? What politician are they today and how did they vote at the state legislature in this state or some other state? Uh, in the past three months. How did they vote in the Congress? The graduates of this university last year, the year before, and the year before that, where are they now and are they for the people now? If you look around, you'll find that none of them, none of the graduates of this university have done anything to benefit the people in this state or anywhere in the country. So you have to ask yourselves if you're going to continue to produce people that oppress people or are you going to produce the kind of people that will be for the liberation of all of the people, for the elimination of oppression, starvation, and the degradation that continues every day in this country? Uh, 
and in many countries across the face of the earth. That is Lauren Watson speaking in 1969. As Black Panthers often did, Watson got pushback from authorities. He faced conspiracy counts, traffic violations, disturbing the peace. At one point, Denver police raided the group's headquarters only hours after Watson's wedding reception. One of his sons, also an activist, told the Denver Post recently that Watson was legendary. They don't really make them like that anymore, he said. The family of an African-American teenager who was shot and killed by Colorado Springs police wants an independent investigation. The family's attorney claims the teen was shot seven times in the back. Police say he was a robbery suspect who drew a gun on them and then ran. This case made us think of an interview from earlier this year with Matthew Horace of Denver. He's given a lot of thought to police shootings of black men. Horace spent 30 years in law enforcement, and he explained to me that as an African-American, he had to be careful when he was off-duty. He says, imagine he was shopping in the suburbs and saw someone committing a crime. If I'm down a lone tree and I'm at the mall and something happens, I am not drawing my gun and running after somebody because I believe, and I don't care what anybody tells me, I believe that if I am running down the street dressed like this with a gun in my hand, yelling, federal agent, don't move, if police officers respond to what they see, right, and I'm chasing someone, whether they're black or whether they're white, I believe I will be shot. So that changes how we act when we're not in uniform and we're not in official capacity. Oh, my God. That's, that was hard for me to hear. But the harder story is the Omar Edwards story. Omar Edwards, the black officer in Harlem who in 2009 was mistaken for a criminal and shot by a fellow cop. Edwards was in plain clothes and chasing a man who was breaking into his car. He was doing exactly what I just explained to you. So most of us who are, and we, these are things we joke about privately, but they're not funny. And we're like, hey, I'm not responding. I'm calling 911. Well, by doing that, you might cost someone else their life. But this is the reality of being black and blue. The Black and the Blue is the title of Matthew Horace's new book. A cop reveals the crimes, racism, and injustice in America's law enforcement. It's based on interviews and case studies nationwide. I asked Horace more about being black and blue. There is a conflict because the community sometimes, and certain members of the community, don't trust you by virtue of the badge you wear. Of the blue. Of the blue, right? And then in environments where we have not been represented in police departments and organizations, then we're not trusted in those organizations, and the numbers are so small that you sometimes become targets in those types of environments as well. So it's a balancing act, and it's a -a 24-hour-a-day balance. So it's balancing the relationship with the community and balancing the relationship with your fellow officers. Exactly. Are police departments inherently racist places? Well, I think if you look at the history of policing in the United States, and because law enforcement by and large has been used to enforce segregation, law enforcement has evolved to be one of those things that we are the fixers of everything in communities. And in communities of color or other communities where crime rates are high, some of the policies that are enacted that we enforce are inherently racist. Like what? Well, look at what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, for instance. While the nation was riveted and focused on Michael Brown and the death 
death of Michael Brown at the hands of Darren Wilson. The issue was much broader and much deeper than that one incident. Michael Brown was sort of like just on the edge of why people were upset. In that community, you had this synchronized system of fining and tickets that people just got to the point. It was a boiling point. And in doing the research for the book, we learned that there was conspiracy involved between the city manager, the finance director, the judges, the police chief, the courts, the prosecutors, just to fine and harass uh, people of color in that community. So Incredibly disproportionate. Incredibly. In and the numbers standard. don't lie. The numbers don't lie. So while people do get upset, and a lot of our community gets upset at the acts of individual officers, this is a system that's been in place that needs to be um, reformed at all levels. You have a lot of compassion for your fellow officers, you know, what they're asked to do every day in communities that struggle with deep-seated problems, mental illness, addiction, poverty. But you also write, we welcome men and women into law enforcement who should never be there. I've worked with men and women we all knew were ticking time bombs waiting to explode. I'm not asking you to name names, but give me an example of what you saw. Well, one example was um, when I was out on surveillance with a white colleague, and I was driving. He was a passenger. And some uh, young men almost hit us in a vehicle. And, you know, we came within probably seconds of having a motor vehicle accident. But in that moment, in the spur of that moment, and we were just having a, a casual drive. We weren't in the middle of some intense undercover operation. We hadn't just arrested anyone. In that moment, with all that calm, my colleague yells the N-word out at the individuals in the vehicle. So these are the types of things that happen in surveillance vehicles, in squad rooms, in offices. And when you speak to African-American police officers and federal agents, by the way, there's not one that I've ever spoken to that hasn't had a similar situation with a colleague in the work environment. So the challenge is every time one of these shootings happens, the police line up on one line and say, this shooting wasn't because of racism. And it very well may not have been because of racism. But then the public comes forward and says, this is a, yet another incident of racist cops, right? So then African-American cops, we see it for what it is, each individual incident and judging it individually. But we also know what we have to deal with internally with some of our colleagues. So. I mean, this is fascinating. What did that officer say to you after he yelled out the N-word? He said, oops. So he said, oops, as if it were a mistake. Well, it was a mistake because I was there. I did file a complaint with the Bureau, and I think somewhere along the way he might have gotten either a week or two weeks off as a discipline. Was he a ticking time bomb? Well, I think anyone that's in that environment of trust and authority that can respond in that way, that quickly, for something so simple, they may be a ticking time bomb. So what's the best approach you've seen to screening out folks who, as you say, should never be there? Well, I know in, in, in writing the book, we spent a lot of time with Chief Michael Harrison in New Orleans, and he had some incredible challenges in managing what was a deplorable situation with the New Orleans Police Department. I One, think he's since moved on. He went to, to Baltimore. Baltimore. He's the chief yeah. superintendent and Baltimore, commissioner in Baltimore now. One of the things he did in, in New Orleans was he started an accountability program where officers who did not communicate what they were seeing based, you know, with other officers' behavior, they were held as accountable as the officer's behavior. So, you know, when an officer commits a... With the idea of there's a responsibility to tell. Yes, we have a responsibility to tell what we see when we're working. And if you don't tell and we find out about it through some other way and we come back and ask you, did you see this? 
and you say yes, you're going to be held responsible because you didn't bring it forward. It's holding the community of police officers responsible. Absolutely. And and he also said they started some wellness. You know, in law enforcement, in many circles, we don't talk about wellness, right? And in corporate environments, wellness is a very big thing. When you see people are having trouble, having problems, having challenges, pull them in, rein them in, change their assignment. If they're too hot-headed, if they're responding in a way that's not consistent with your values, rein them in, give them something else to do and find out what's going on. In our profession, we very rarely do that. There are progressive departments out there now that are looking at these things. But he used, he used a very good example. If you and I come to work and we're partners and you know I'm having a bad time, yeah, right? It could be domestic. It could be with family. It could be with money. You know I'm having a bad day. You're my partner. And we go to a call that's going to present some challenges. Why not you take the lead on the call and have me be the backup? These are little things we can do to protect each other, right, from hurting ourselves because police officers are human. And the job is very, very difficult. People will test you day in and day out, but you're paid to be protectors and guardians. And that's unfortunately some communities see policing as protectors and guardians and some communities see police officers as warriors. You also point to work in Cleveland. What did you find in Cleveland? Well, two cases come to mind in Ohio. The Tamir Rice case, mm. who was playing with a toy gun in a park, and officers, you know, responded to the park, and within minutes he was dead with a toy gun, a 12-year-old kid, right? But, you know, social science has told us time and time again that when people see African-Americans, and particularly African-American kids, they always believe that they're older than they are. So I don't know why that happens. It's sort of one of those inherent implicit biases that we all live with. And then you had the situation in Ohio where the gentleman was in the Walmart and looking at a toy gun and he wasn't pointing at anyone or anything, but someone called the police and said, there's a black man in Walmart pointing a gun at people. The police responded and within minutes he was dead, but also another person at the Walmart died of a heart attack in the process and watching how this evolved. So there is this thing and that we talk about in the book, and, and I've seen it over and over and over again, that when that radio call goes out and it says black man with a gun, the police respond very differently than when someone says there's a white man with a gun. You write a lot about implicit bias, a term that really hadn't entered the lexicon when you started in law enforcement. How much do you think those biases can be trained out? It's not a matter of training it out. It's a mattering of letting you know how you identify your own implicit biases, and then reining that into check so that you understand when things kick in to make you think. And I'll give you a for instance. Yeah. You're in a police car with a partner, and you're rolling down the street. And no matter how, how much you deplore seeing a kid with their pants hanging down, right, to say something that's racially motivated about it lets everyone know that you have a bias. So if you have a bias, how are you going to be able to walk up to that person and say, Good morning. My name is Officer Horace. How are you doing today? Right. How are you going to be able to do that effectively if you have a bias? Now, it was interesting. I remember when I was in the police department and I'd be in a car with people, you would see someone in the African-American community and, and people would say things like, I don't know why they dress like that. or I don't know how they live like that. And then you walk around the corner to another community and you would see a, a white teenager with gothic gear on. And it gets no suspicion from anyone. And if you see seven white teenagers with goth gear on, it gets no suspicion. Even though it may look out of place in an environment, they're not approached the same way. So implicit biases are things we all have. We all live with them. But they have to be trained and they have to be yielded into check. I remember speaking with a Colorado researcher who tests for bias. 
And I think the video game he developed was to measure how quickly you might shoot an assailant. Mm. Okay. And uh, if the assailant was white, people were less likely to shoot them quickly. And if they were black, they were far more likely to shoot the assailant and do so quickly. They tested white people on this. They also tested black people. Right. And the same biases that drove the white person to shoot the black person faster drove the black people to shoot the black people faster. I want to ask if, as a black officer, you noticed your own biases towards other people of color. Sure. Well, not only that, but... In, in deference to people's sexuality. I talk in the book about a case that I went out on as a police officer where there was a domestic assault. And I met the gentleman outside of the apartment who was a Hispanic and obviously had been assaulted. So he told us that he, he wanted his um, partner out of the house. He was tired of this. He had been hit. And automatically, myself and my partner, who's a female, we assume we're going to go upstairs to talk to a woman. We make that assumption because of our biases. Now we get to the top of the stairs. We walk into the apartment. And there's a gentleman sitting in the apartment because all we knew was that the person's name was Leslie, which could be a man or it could be a woman. We get to the apartment and the individual is sitting on the couch. And much to my surprise, it's a man, number one. So there go my biases out the door. And then we see that the individual is large. He's huge. And we have some dialogue with, with Leslie. And we say, Leslie, we need you to stand up and go downstairs with us because your partner is pressing charges X, Y, and Z. And he's saying, I'm not standing up. Well, you know, with noncompliance, now comes escalation of force. At some point in that conversation, Leslie stands up, just like we asked him to, and he's like 6'8 and over 300 pounds. So he's bigger than we both thought. Now he's standing. So I say to him, I'm going to need you to sit back down. And Leslie says, I'm not sitting down. You told me to stand up. And at some point, we have dialogue with him, trying to get the situation calmed down. And at some point in that dialogue, we're assuming things are going to escalate. Why? Because he's huge. Secondly, he's being non-compliant. At some point, he puts his head in his hands, he starts crying, and he just says, I just don't want to leave. I don't want to go to jail. I love him, blah, blah, blah. Well, some officers may have taken that the whole way, the wrong way. They may have drawn their weapons, and they might have said, I'm not going to tell you again. You need to X, Y, and Z. We were patient, we were measured, and we didn't ha- no one got hurt. But our implicit biases could have changed that scenario. I have a great, a great story for you. When I was in Baltimore, we did a book signing in Baltimore. And one of the officers told me a story about, and this goes back to hiring and recruitment. He said, two young police officers stopped a vehicle. And there were probably five African-American males in the vehicle. And they called for backup because the vehicle was occupied five times by five black males. Then the officer goes on the air and says, the occupants of the vehicle are throwing gang signs. Well, when that happens now, more officers come to the scene because they think they're on to something that may be a little more than what they thought. Well, they get to the scene, and once all is said and done, they find out that all the occupants in the, in the vehicle were deaf, right? But think of how the response, and think about what could happen, you know, when people's heart rates are escalated, when our assumptions are drawn, and we think we're dealing with five members of the Crips of the Bloods. But now, the question becomes, if the vehicle had been occupied by five white males, would the assumption have been that they were throwing gang signs? There certainly are white gangs, right? But the officer's biases came out on that stop. And this is a sergeant telling the story, and he's talking about the people we're hiring and how they think and what their assumptions. Someone could have been killed in that situation. 
and mistakenly so. And if you don't think it could have happened, look at Philandro Castile. Philandro Castile told the officer that he had a firearm. And normally, for me, if you tell me you have a firearm, and my next questions are, where is the firearm? But my heart rate doesn't go up when someone says I have a firearm. Mm. My heart rate goes up when I see a firearm that no one told me about. The opposite happened in the Philandro Castile case. How do, we, how do we get there that that was okay? There's a kind of dualistic view, I think, going on of Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter. But you write, despite claims to the contrary, Black Lives Matter is not anti-cop, just as the women's movement is not anti-men or the civil rights movement anti-white. And I'll just note that this line appears in the opening of your book. Why was that important for you to write? Well, I think it was important for people on all sides to understand that we were trying to demonstrate balance. I understand how difficult the job is being a police officer because I've done it. I understand the use of force because I've been involved with use of force incidents. And I also understand being in fear of my life and being scared. On the same token, some of the things that we've seen in some of these uh, video depictions are unacceptable against the law, and they decry anything that we've ever been trained to do. So I want to be able to say from both sides of the fence, this is what we're trained to do, and that's what we're not. I also don't want the public to think for one second that policing is a profession where people come to work every day just to shoot black people. There's a lot of dynamics that go on, you know, involving these incidents. But there are those officers that are working the streets that are on these jobs. They shouldn't have passed the screening and the recruitment. They shouldn't have passed the hiring, but they did. There are some departments that hire officers, even though they've had problems in other departments. You know, if you're an accountant and you work for Merrill Lynch and you get fired, it's very unlikely that Ernst & Young is going to hire you, right? But if you're a police officer and you're involved with five, you know, controversial incidents, there are police departments out here that will hire you. So we need to rethink who we bring into this noble profession. And it is a noble profession. How important is it that a police force look like the community it polices? It's extremely important. And most successful organizations have learned that. But equally important uh-huh. is that they hire the right people. And the reason why I say that, we make the case in the book that you can't say every police department that's predominantly black is good, right? Because when you look at Baltimore, Baltimore's police department is 42% African-American, but yet Baltimore is under a consent degree. The Philadelphia Police Department has a large minority population, and look what happened at Starbucks with the two gentlemen that got arrested in Starbucks. Chicago Police, New York City Police, they have diversity, but many of these departments are still under consent. Look at Chicago. Consent consent decree is like a federal intervention. It's a federal intervention for departments that can't manage themselves. So that's why we chose the black and the blue versus the black and the white. This is not exclusively a black and white issue. And look at the fact that Baltimore and some other cities have had black police chiefs, black city councils, black mayors, black politicians, but yet the police departments have still gone amok and run rogue at times. So you can't just say it's all white officers and all black people. There are some stunning statistics in your book, quoting here, only two out of every 100 homicides in America are ruled justifiable by law enforcement, except when a white person shoots a black person. 16% were deemed lawful, eight times the general population. Right. What's going on there? (laughs) Look at what happened in um, New York with the Eric Garner case. Eric Garner was choked to death. There's no other way around it. He was choked to death by police officers who used a tactic that is unlawful. But the Eric Garner case was tried in Staten Island. 
Staten Island, New York is basically home to public service employees in New York City, firemen, policemen. So look at the nature of the jury. In the Walter Scott case in South Carolina, the first case was a hung jury. And you might ask yourself, how could there be a hung jury in a case where someone was shot in the back, running away, and the officer tried to plant evidence that we saw it on video? There is this thing that people believe, they want to believe that their police officers are doing the right thing. They just refuse to believe that anything could have been wrong with what happened until someone they know is involved. Talk to me about the balance of indicting the system, right? Like the system of policing is a problem versus indicting, uh, and I don't mean literally and legally, but individual officers who often in these cases get off relatively scot-free. I think we tried to make the case in the book that as much as people are upset with the officer, what I'd like public to understand and recognize also is that officers don't create their own strategic patrol tactics and, and policies. Officers come to work and they are largely told by sergeants, lieutenants, captains, commanders, and people above them what your priorities should be for a certain area or your certain beat. It even goes deeper than that. In many cases, the chief is told by mayors, city councils, what we want to happen in certain areas. And a good example of that is the case with the officer in New York in the book where he says, we were told by councilman's office, make sure that street corner, 125th and Lennox Lennox Avenue, is clean. I don't want anybody on that corner because the council people are coming through this afternoon and we want this to be right. When they send edicts like that down, It goes all the way down the train. It goes down to the patrol. It goes down to the precinct. And they say, you make sure nobody's on that corner this afternoon between one and five. And I don't care what you got to do. You just make sure nobody's out there. The officers are doing what they were told to do. In the case of Ferguson, as we understand it, many officers decried and disagreed with the strategy of finding and ticketing and warning. But the chief was told, this is what you'll do. The officers are told, this is what you'll do. So people tend to focus on what the officer's doing mm. and less on the policies of a department or the policies of a, of a government. And they, by and large, make up and guide what officers do. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Matthew Horace of Denver has written The Black and the Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism, and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement. We spoke in March. Colorado Matters continues after a break. You're with CPR News. It's Colorado. It's 2019. Weed is legal. It's not that unusual to see cannabis yoga classes, guided cannabis meditations, even cannabis churches. Now, using cannabis to meditate or worship is not a new thing. Rastafarians have been using it for almost 100 years. But in this new world of legalization, what changes when we're talking about weed and religion? Find out on the latest episode of CPR's new podcast, On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As a kid, golden author Rebecca Crane didn't like to read. Now she writes novels for young adults. Her sixth, called Postcards for a Songbird, was just released. Crane calls this story about a teenager named Wren an ugly duckling story. She spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. What do you mean by an ugly duckling story? Yeah, um, when I was writing Postcards for a Songbird, I was 
doing a deep dive into feminine archetype. And I was reading the brilliant book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. And I came across the story of the ugly duckling. And as I was reading her iteration of the story, it dawned on me that it was completely Wren's. It's about um, a person who has been kind of plucked out of where they belong and placed in a space where they don't. And their whole journey is to find where they belong again. And what do you mean by plucked out of where they belong? I think that um, kind of the way that the ugly duckling um, archetype is described is that you're born into this family, where as Ren is, where everybody seems to be familiar to each other except for the person who's living it. So you feel as though you're unfamiliar even to those around you. And you're seeking that familiar. And the whole time you're trying so hard to be a duck, to be a duck, to be a duck, because everybody around you is a duck. And you were born a duck when in actual reality you're meant to be with the swans. And it's your job as you fly through life, as you coast through, as Ren does her um, teenage years, to find the people that are yours, that are your being. And do you see that as a common thing with girls coming of age? I think it's a common thing, yes, with with all people. I think at all, at different times in our lives, we feel as though we belong. And then there are times that when we feel as though we don't belong. And I think during teenage years and what makes young adult literature so interesting is that we all have moments of feeling like an outsider, wondering if the people that we've chosen to spend time with, to surround ourselves with, are really our people. And what else is out there? What else is there to explore within the world that might be us more than we think we are today? Let's talk about Ren and her family. She's gone through a lot um, for her young age. Everyone seems to leave her in her life. Her mother left the family. Her sister leaves. Ren's best friend eventually abandons her. Ren's father, who she calls chief, works nights as a cop. Tell us a bit about Ren's place in the family. Ren is raised by a single father who, um, as you said, is a police officer, a graveyard shift police officer. And he's doing the best that he can. I think as parents, there are times in our lives where we are kind of in survival mode. And that's the place that he's been in for 14 years, raising two girls on his own, one that is pretty extravagant. And then there's Ren, who kind of holds everything together. Her role within the family is to create a space that people want to come back to. That's what she takes as her goal. If she can keep her house a place where her dad and her sister want to be, where they feel loved and they feel welcome and they feel as though they can be themselves, then the fear of them leaving, which is her ultimate fear, is abated. And what she ends up finding out at the beginning of the story is that all of this fighting, all of this holding together still leads to her sister leaving her. And um, that act forces her to redefine her role within her family and within her friendships and within herself, within her own being. And Ren's love for her sister, her sense of that loss when she leaves, is really profound. And I wonder what you want to say about that sisterly relationship. I have two sisters. So to start there and say that 
I think that sisterly bond is um, one of the most profound gifts that we're given um, in in a lifetime. And the dynamic amongst sisters, particularly an older sister to a younger sister, me being I'm the middle child, but my older sister really could do no wrong growing up. She was the coolest, the best, everything that I wanted to be even though she probably would say that I should not have been anything like her. And she probably wanted to be a little bit more like me. But I think that there is this connection. And what I was really trying to dig into with this story is how sisters interweave their own personalities into each other and how they create this bond between the two of them that is unbreakable no matter what the distance is and the growth that can be offered through even a sister leaving and allowing the one to grow into who she is and how Ren looks back on all of these moments with her sister and thinks, I could never be like that. I could never be like that. When the reality is, is that she was who she is the whole time and she just needed to find that and not be her older sister, but be herself, her beautiful, complicated, tangled self. We won't get into why Ren's sister and her mother each leave, but her sister Lizzie sends her postcards while she's gone. She refers to Ren as Songbird in the postcards, and of course, Ren's name is also the name of a bird. How is Ren bird-like? Um, I think that she thinks that she's otherworldly. Again, it kind of goes back to the ugly duckling archetype in that um, there are all of these people living on the earth, and she's soaring above them, observing. And she's very comfortable doing that. She's very comfortable staying detached from humanity because it's protective. It's the ability to, when you get a little too close to life, to soar away, to pull back, to be um, on your own in the sky, to, um, to pick a different direction. And she has to learn how to come down to the ground and live in this being that she is and not keep pulling herself out of society and out of complicated situations that she's in. And so the more that she learns um, about herself, the more she engages with the pack of humans that are below her. You know, Ren's best friend, Chloe, is not what you'd call a good friend. She ditches Ren for a boyfriend. She's not very kind. And I wonder when you write, do you ever think of teen readers recognizing themselves and say a destructive friendship? I think of really anybody reading the story and recognizing themselves within the characters. I think that is what draws us to fiction. I think it's not necessarily that we fall in love with characters, but we fall in love with ourselves within those characters. And so reading opens a door of opportunity for us to have self-reflection, to wonder, would we do the same thing? Would we make the same decisions? And I think that in creating any sort of antagonist, you're trying to find that kind of universal moment we've all had with people who are antagonists in our own lives, but also the humanity 
within that space as well. No villain is 100% villain. The best villains are villains with a purpose. And um, Chloe is one of those characters that believes she's doing right for herself, but is causing the destruction of her best friend in the process. The book is about Ren's efforts to find people who do understand her. And she develops a relationship with a boy. He becomes a love interest. It's a wonderful love story because she finds someone who understands her but also allows her to break out of her shell. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, Ren eventually meets this boy. He runs into her in the grocery store, but... Um, a little, a few chapters later, she realizes he's in her driver's ed class, which I'm not sure there's anything more torturous than sitting down driver's ed class. Um, I remember it very vividly from my teenage years, and I remember falling asleep during it. <laughs> and Luca is that. He is this trapped kid in a classroom that all he wants to do is break out. And she is very comfortable sitting in a desk and listening for hours. And he is the person that just needles and needles and needles her until she can't take it anymore and she has to participate. And I think we all have those moments in our life where we want somebody to needle us. We want somebody to push us to the edge because while we won't say it out loud, we're desperate for somebody to make us break out of, of the routine that we're in. And he is that for her. And he gives her, most importantly, a safe space to adventure. And while that's very daunting in the beginning, it ends up becoming, I think, for like for most of us, very addicting. And we see that, oh, my gosh, this thing that we were so afraid of is actually the thing we needed most in our lives. We said earlier that you didn't like to read when you were younger. Eventually, you became a reader and a writer. What changed? Um, I found young adult books. I am a self-proclaimed non-reader from my childhood. I have very few memories of reading. It just was not my go-to thing. And then I took a class in college while studying a secondary education called Young Adult Fiction. And... Um, I fell in love with books, and it was the first time in my life where I felt as though I was presented with fiction that spoke to me, where I wasn't trying to analyze it, to find themes, to break it down for a classroom, but I was trying to experience it, and experiencing it connected so much to my experience. And I think that's the beauty of young adult fiction, that while they're stories about teenagers, they're not meant solely for teenagers because we all go through it. And I think that readers, when they do read young adult fiction, feel that camaraderie, that um, human experience of what it means to grow up. And once I found that, I couldn't stop reading. I think there's also something about how we carry memories of our young adulthood throughout our whole life. There's very clear memory of that time in our lives. Yeah. I heard somebody tell me one time that adult fiction reflects on the trauma of teenage years and young adult fiction actually writes about it. And I do think all people remember their teenage years, good, bad, ugly, sad, the emotional gamut that we run is still pretty raw as we get older. And that isn't necessarily the case for all stages in life. 
And I think that's what makes young adult fiction so powerful and so popular. Rebecca, thanks so much. Thank you. Rebecca Crane lives in Golden and writes young adult novels. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about her latest, Postcards for a Songbird. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek. I'm Ryan Warner. You're tuned to CPR News. <laughs>